So do you like movies that have happy endings? Do you like movies that have nice endings? You know, those, those Hallmark movies like Rod likes so very much during Christmas time. <laughs> I think I can share this a little bit, but if you ask Becky if she likes a movie or not, she'll ask you, well, how does it end? How does it go? <laughs> does it end well? Because she doesn't want to put in all this energy and find out, oh, I'm awful, and it feels horrible, and this is, I'm crying, or whatever. Yeah, Rod, you're on that, right? Mr. Hallmark movie guy, yeah. Well, Isaiah chapter 65 and 66 is kind of like that nice ending to a movie, a gracious ending to a great book. We're coming to the end of our, our brief but applicable journey through Isaiah where we have been trying to develop our trust in God through troubled times. That's why we've been looking at Isaiah and how it can help us through those difficult situations, help us navigate through those times. And I think as we look at Isaiah chapter 65 and a little bit of chapter 66, we'll be encouraged that when we become fickle in our faith through our difficult situations, God remains faithful to us. But before we dig into the last two chapters of Isaiah and discover God's faithfulness despite man's fickleness, we need to make sure that we set the stage by understanding the context here. So beginning a chapter before, a couple chapters before in Isaiah chapter 63, verse 7, we find a prayer that begins here of Isaiah that is offered up to God in response to all that has been revealed about the day of the Lord. And Isaiah ends that prayer with a plea for God's mercy at the end of chapter 64. It goes all the way through to the end of chapter 64, this long prayer. And in Isaiah chapter 64, verses 8 through 12, let me read those to you. It says, yet, yet, O Lord, you are our Father, we are the clay. You are the potter, we are all the work of your hand. Of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, O Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look upon us, we pray, for we are all your people. Our sacred cities have become a desert. Even Zion is a desert. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and glorious temple, where our fathers praised you, has been burned with fire, and all that we treasured lies in ruins. After all this, O oh Lord, will you hold yourself back? Will you keep silent and punish us beyond measure? And that part of that prayer, you probably pray that for us in our nation today as well, too. But from what we've, what we've seen throughout Isaiah, this prayer certainly is appropriate. We have heard Isaiah describe the destruction and desolation that is to occur as the result of God's judgment. So Isaiah pleads for God's mercy and asks that God would restrain himself. So chapters 65 and 66 are God's answer to that prayer. Chapter 65 contains three major sections that we're going to be looking at here today, and hopefully we can get through this, and I don't start talking too fast <laughs> so we can get through it. But uh, in, in, these, in these two chapters, we see the answer to, his, to the prayer in these three major sections that we'll try to examine one at a time here today. First of all, in chapter 65, Isaiah 65, the first seven verses we find here about the fickleness of man. Have you ever dealt with people who are fickle, who are indecisive? <laughs> maybe, you, maybe you also had just from the question of, where do you want to go eat tonight? 
You know, I don't know. What do you want to do? I don't know. What do you... And okay, make a decision. Becky and I have been on that conversation many times before. <laughs> and, and I'm usually the one who says, I don't know. What do you want to do? And maybe you are that person. The indecisive, maybe flip-flopping back and forth between issues. You know, we've had our share of political ads that have attempted to help those who are indecisive, right? <laughs> Not sure that that's helped too much. <laughs> you know, oh, okay, now that I've seen this ad, I know how I'm going to vote. Thank you. you know. But God responds to Isaiah's prayer by pointing out that the people don't deserve to experience the mercy of God because they have been fickle and, re and, and rejected Him repeatedly. Look with me in the first seven verses of Isaiah 65. It says, I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. To a nation that did not call on my name, I said, here am I, here am I. All day long I have held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations, a people who continually provoke me to my very face, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on altars of brick, who sit among the graves and spend their nights keeping secret vigil, who eat the flesh of pigs and whose pots hold broth of unclean meat, who say, keep away, don't come near me, for I am too sacred for you. Such people are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that keeps burning all day. See, it stands written before me, I will not keep silent, but will pay back in full. I will pay it back into their laps, both your sins and the sins of your fathers, says the Lord, because they burned sacrifices on the mountains and defiled and defied me on the hills. I will measure into their laps the full payment for their former deeds. So in, the, in these first few verses, we already see that God reveals what He has done in order to establish relationship with His people and how the people responded to His actions. Let's look at this. In the first two verses, we see that God initiated the relationship with His people. He was the one that went forward first. In verses 1 and 2, it's obvious that God is the one who initiated the relationship with, with His people, even when His people weren't seeking Him out. He was seeking them. And in, in other words, even though the people had done absolutely nothing to try and develop a relationship with God, and they had done nothing to even merit the possibility of such a relationship. God had done what was required to provide the means for a relationship. God had done that because it's His nature to do so. But God didn't just do that for the people of Israel and Judah. He has done the very same thing for us by sending His Son, Jesus, to this earth in order to provide the means of a relationship with Him. He's the way to God. Jesus is the way. In, in uh, 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, a familiar portion of Scripture tells us this. It says, this is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So because of His love for us, God, through Jesus, has initiated the relationship with us. And also in verse 2, we see that God was persistent in making Himself available. He kept on going, continued. Not only had God initiated that relationship, but He had also been persistent in making Himself available. And that's the picture we get here in verse 2, when God reveals that He spread out His hands all the day 
In other words, his, his offer of relationship hadn't been a take-it-or-leave-it kind of offer. We see that confirmed in, in many of the Old Testament accounts where God had frequently given His people the opportunity to repent and turn back to Him. And again, we see this same aspect of God's character confirmed in the New Testament as well. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So even, even in spite of man's consistent fickleness and rebellion, God is persistent and He is patient in order to provide abundant opportunities to enter into a, a relationship with Him. But in spite of God's initiation of, of the relationship and His persistent in, in persistence in making Himself available, we see in verses 2 through 5 of this portion of Scripture that God's people continually rejected Him. Isaiah pictures people who have not just rejected God once or twice, but people who have developed a lifestyle where they consistently and continually choose to follow their own ways rather than to obey God. In fact, they didn't, they didn't just quietly reject God. They threw it back in His face, intentionally violating His commandments, even having to, the nerve to claim that they were too holy for God. Jesus condemned that kind of self-righteousness frequently in the Gospels. And for example, almost all of Matthew chapter 23 is devoted to the seven woes that Jesus pronounced against the scribes and the Pharisees because of their self-righteousness. And then as a result, everyone deserves judgment. That's it. Everyone's going to get it. There's no one good because they have rejected God's provision for a relationship with Him and they insisted on following their own ways instead. God leaves no doubt that the people don't deserve the mercy that Isaiah has prayed for. You heard that prayer. Isaiah was asking for that mercy. God answered it. No way. They deserve judgment. And although he had been patient with his people up to that point, and he has been patient with us for over 2,500 years, there is going to be a time when the people are going to get exactly what they deserve for rebelling, rebelling against God. This is exactly the same message consistently proclaimed by Amos, by Joel, <clears throat> Obadiah, and now Isaiah here. God is extremely patient, but there's going to come a time when it will no longer be possible to repent and turn back to God. There'll be a time. And the people who have rejected God will be paid back for the rebellion as they, they experience God's judgment. But even though the people didn't deserve God's mercy, there was this bridge that God had built that moved His people from the realm of their fickleness to, to the realm of God's faithfulness. That bridge was and also remains today as God's grace. That's what we'll look here in these next verses of, of Isaiah 65, verses 8 through 16. It says, this is what the Lord says. As when juice is still found in a cluster of grapes, and men say, don't destroy it, there is yet some good in it, so will I do in behalf of my servants. I will not destroy them all. I will bring forth descendants from Jacob and from Judah, those who will possess my mountains. My chosen people will inherit them, and there will, there will my servants live. 
Sharon will become a pasture for flocks, and the valley of Achor a resting place for herds, for my people who seek me. But as for you who forsake the Lord and forget my holy mountain, who spread a table for fortune and fill bowls of mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you for the sword, and you will all bend down for the slaughter. For I called, but you did not answer. I spoke, but you did not listen. You did evil in my sight and chose what displeases me. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. My servants will eat, but you will go hungry. My servants will drink, but you will go thirsty. My servants will rejoice, but you will be put to shame. My servants will sing out of, of the joy of their hearts, but you will cry out from anguish of heart and wail in brokenness of spirit. You will leave your, you will leave your name to my chosen ones as a curse. The sovereign Lord will put you to death, but to his servants he will give another name. Whoever invokes a blessing in the land will do so by the God of truth. He who takes an oath in the land will swear by the God of truth, for the past troubles will be forgotten and hidden from my eyes. So there's this remnant that God preserves, a remnant who follow God. Verses 8 through 10, we see this. God reveals that even though no one deserves His mercy, He's going to demonstrate His grace by preserving this group, small group of people, this remnant. In the same way that the owner of the vineyard wouldn't destroy the entire cluster of grapes if there was a possibility of producing some new wine from even a few good grapes on the cluster, God wouldn't destroy the entire nation of Israel because the, these would be a small remnant of those who had remained faithful to Him. God promised that Israel and Judah would, would be rejoined in, into the nation of Israel and God would bless them by returning them to the land. He had promised to, to them and making them faithful fruitful once again. Sharon of, and, the, and the Valley of Achor re- represent the, the western and the eastern boundaries of the land that God had promised His people. So the picture we have here is that Israel will at last possess all the land that God had promised to Joshua, all before the people entered into the promised land. And Isaiah describes some important characteristics of the remnant, which I believe are important for us to notice as well. First of all, we see that these rem- this remnant were seekers. In verse 10, at the end of verse 10, God describes the remnant as, My people who seek me. This is in sharp contrast to the description of those who are not part of the remnant, as we'll see in just a moment. Inter- interestingly here, the prophet Jeremiah also connected this idea of seeking God with the people of Israel being brought back into the land in Jeremiah 29. Verses 13 14, it says, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. So that prophecy certainly applied to the southern tribes of Judah returning to Jerusalem after that Babylonian exile but it also has application to the end times here in Isaiah. The picture here is that those who are part of the remnant will not be those who just casually encounter God on their own terms. The remnant are those who earnestly seek after Him. The Bible is filled with warnings for His people to seek God and His kingdom. As Paul pointed out in his address to the people of Athens, God is not far away, but He is only found by those who seek Him. In Acts chapter 17, 
says, from one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. So the question is for us, am I really seeking after God? Have I been distracted? There are, there are other things in, in life that are pulling me away from that desire of seeking after God. And then God refers to His people as my servants seven times in this section. So we see that this remnant is also, they're also servants. And it's definitely significant that God chose to focus on this characteristic of the remnant. Just think for a moment about a servant. What is that primarily what is it that primarily defines someone as a servant? Is that the servant carries out the desires and commands of his master. And as, as we'll see here in a moment, one of the primary ways that the, the remnant distinguishes itself is that it's obedient to God as its master, which is quite a stark contrast to those who cho choose to be their own masters, doing their own thing, calling their own shots. The problem with many of the people in Isaiah's day is that they wanted God to save them, but they weren't willing to be His servant and obey His commands. Help me, Lord, but I'm still going to be doing my own thing. That sounds like a common thing these days as well, too. Things really haven't changed that all that much today. In this self-centered culture of ours, we need to make Jesus our Lord, make Him our Master, as well as our Savior. And that has been diminished. But when Peter preached his sermon on, on the day of Pentecost, he certainly confirmed the need to make Jesus our Lord as well as our Savior. In Acts chapter 2, verse 30, 36, he says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So Peter makes it quite clear that we don't get to pick and choose which aspects of Jesus we believe in. We either accept Him as both Lord and, and Savior, Lord and Christ, uh, a reference to His role, of course, as Savior, but, or we don't get Him at all. So the question comes to us, is Jesus really my Lord? Is Jesus Lord of my life? And, and, and then in chapter 66, Isaiah 66, we see a in verse 2, that God provides us with two more important character traits of those who will make up the remnant. Verse 2, it says, This is the one I esteem, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So humility. Humility is another aspect of this remnant. <clears throat> Earlier in Isaiah, God confronted the, the arrogance of the people of Judah. And here at the end of the book, that arrogance is still evident. The people are religious, but the religion is all based on their own ideas about how to worship God. They are making sacrifices, but certainly not in the way that God had provided. And more importantly, they were just going through the motions without having their hearts right with God. How do you come to church on Sundays? Are you just going through the motions? Are you just being here because this is what you do on a Sunday? Or do you come expectantly waiting and anticipating how God is going to speak to you personally? Maybe, maybe speaking to a certain situation in your life. Maybe giving you guidance. We need to come to God 
in a way where we, where we are we're humble before Him. Realize that we don't have all the answers. We're not the ones. God is more concerned about our hearts than our outward actions. He's concerned about what's going on on the inside. That's a lesson that David learned after he was confronted by Nathan about his sin. David wrote in Psalm 51 as his response to God, and in the middle of that psalm we find these words in verses 16 and 17, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. It's definitely important to make Jesus our master and Lord and obey His commands and carry out His wishes, but this only has significance if those actions are carried out with a a sense of a deep humility where we recognize our sinfulness and our dependence on God. Those actions should be a response to the goodness and faithfulness of God and not, not an attempt on our part to earn or deserve God's favor. We don't do good so that we can get what God wants to give us. We follow God. We do what's right before Him because it's right. (laughs) And we love God. So the question comes to us, do I have a humble attitude? What's your attitude like? Is it humble before God or is it like, I can take care of some things. I got this in control. And then also in verse 2 of Isaiah 66, we see here that there needs to be a, a, a reverent awe for God's Word in, among this remnant. We see this characteristic. For Isaiah and for many of the other Old Testament prophets, their hearts must have been heavy as they faithfully preached God's Word day after day and saw little evidence that the people had even heard God's Word, let alone allowing God, God's Word to, to change their life in any way. The judgment that Isaiah has described throughout his ministry is a a scary thing. Or at least it should have been for the people in Judah. They certainly should have trembled at that word, and it should have been the motivation for them to adjust their lives to God's word. But instead, in their arrogance, they just kept living their lives according to their own ways and expected God to adjust to them. I know that when Steph and Mike myself handle the Word of God each week, we do it with a deep sense of reverent awe for His Word. I'm very aware of the fact that I'm entirely incapable on my own of ever being able to preach from God's Word, my own knowledge, my own wisdom, and my own strength. That's why I pray that every word I speak would not be my own, but would be God's. And if it is my own, you guys would forget it. And as hearers of God's Word, all of us have a responsibility to respond to that Word with a sense of reverent awe. We ought to tremble at the thought of the consequences that inevitably come with a failure to listen to and obey God's Word. We need to get on our knees and ask God to help us to understand and apply His Word and to empower us to do so. When you come for Sunday services and your Sunday service this morning and you come each Sunday, I I expect, anticipate how God's Word is going to change your life and you'll put it into practice throughout the days ahead. That you won't just come here and just listen to it and go, that was nice. 
that was neat. But that you would go, wow, that was God's word. <laughs> I need to make some changes. That's why I'm here, <laughs> standing here, bringing God's message so that you'll hear it, but not only hear it, but you'll act upon it. That's my prayer for all of us that we'll get something out of this, this time together, the foolishness of preaching, to be able to come away with what God has for you this week and what you need to be working on and follow Him closely. So another question we would have before us is, do I revere God's Word by listening and obeying it? So this remnant only consists of a small portion of those who claim to be God's people. And the picture for the rest of them is not very pretty. In verse 11, the remaining who forsake God, we notice there's this drastic change as Isaiah begins to describe the judgment that will come. I mean, he was, he was talking about the remnant. It was like, yeah, that's great, but oh, whoa, we're getting into something else here. He, he knew that those others need to be addressed. <laughs> they need to know the peril, the danger that they're getting into. Judgment was coming. And in that section, we find a description of the character of those people. They refused to listen to God. In verse 12, when He called, they didn't answer. And when He spoke, they didn't listen. He got a busy signal. God, didn't, God did everything He needed to do to initiate a relationship with them, but they chose not to listen or even respond to God. But before we're too quick to condemn, maybe we need to take a closer look at our own lives as well. How many times do we fail to listen to God? Maybe we're too busy to take the time to read His Word, too busy maybe to pray so that He can speak to us. Or maybe we hear, but we're too busy to listen. Or maybe we just think that we're capable of handling things on our own and we don't really need to hear God. I can take care of this. That was certainly the case for Isaiah's audience, and that leads us directly into the second characteristic of those who will not be part of the remnant. Verse 2 as well as verse 12, they chose their own ways rather than God's. Verse 2, God reveals that these, these people are pursuing their own imaginations. And then at the end of verse 12, this idea is reinforced when God says that they did evil in my sight and chose what displeases me. In fact, as you read the entire first 12 verses of the chapter, the one thing that separates these people from the remnant is the fact that they chose to follow the God of self rather than the one true God. And I, I, I tell you, that is probably the biggest temptation of us all, following self rather than God, because pride gets in the way. We, get, we, 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 we learn from an early age, you can do this. You can, you can make it on your own. You can, you can get going. And, and as we realize those things, it's kind of ingrained in us in that way. Not, you know, don't blame your parents, but it's just ingrained in that in us. We want to go our own way. We want to do it on our own. I'll do it. I can do this thing. I'm capable of it. And then we realize, <laughs> whoops, I guess I can't. And we realize then our need for God. Watch out. Watch out for that God of self. 
that we might not set out on, on our own to try to follow and serve and worship, but just little things along the way causes us to get closer to that God than the true God that we need to be following and choosing. We don't have time to look at the, the rest of them, but uh, in verses 13 through 16, it describes a series of contrasts between the, the blessings that, that the remnant will experience and the judgment that will be experienced by those who are, are not part of, of the remnant. And one of the things about this chapter is that it ends on such a positive note. It, it does. Trust me. Even though man is fickle, God is still faithful, and we're going to look at the evidence of God's faithfulness right now. That, that bridge of God's grace Evident in the, in, the, in the remnant God preserves allows us to cross over from the fickleness of man and experience God's faithfulness. And that's what we see here in verses 17 through 25. And if you've read through this before, you go, wow, this looks a lot like I've heard in Revelation about heaven. A lot about something, this glorious place that I will be going to later. Well, God's faithfulness here is on full display in this last section of chapter 65, where Isaiah describes what God has in store for those who experience His grace. Let me read this to you, because I think God's Word will speak to your heart even more than I could. Behold, verse 17, Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight, and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. He who dies at a hundred will be, will be thought a mere youth. He who, who, who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed." They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them, or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the works of their hands. They will not toil in vain or bear children doomed to misfortune, for they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. But dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. <laughs> Isaiah provides an additional picture of this to this glorious time near the end of chapter 66 as well. In verses 22 and 23, it says, As the new heavens and the new earth that I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so will your name and descendants endure. From one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all mankind will come and bow down before me, says the Lord. So scriptures show how God progressively reveals His truth. And that can be seen quite clearly here as we find the first reference in the Bible to a new heavens and a new earth. And we find this same idea referred to in the New Testament by Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3, as well as in Revelation chapter 21. So we shouldn't expect that Isaiah is going to give us the whole picture here. But he is picturing the faithfulness of God, which is going to be demonstrated to his people by the provision of a glorious future. It's the thing about prophets. They give out 
bits of information that are given to them by God. It might not make sense. And we see in Isaiah, if you follow those verses there, you're going, wait, wait a second. Is that heaven? Because if you see some things here, there's some things that, that, that don't quite match up. See, Isaiah doesn't seem to distinguish between a couple of things here. Uh, there are two separate but related aspects to that glorious future that are described here. Let me try to, quite, try to untangle this in here in the next few minutes that we have and give an application of this as well. In verses 20 through 25, we see here what is described as the millennial reign of Jesus. Now, if you know me in the last 18 years that I've been here as your pastor, I've never spoken on the end times very much because that's an interpretation you guys need to look at and, and be guided by God on that because there's a lot of different ideas out there about this. But let me throw this at you from, from God's Word uh, in Isaiah as well as Revelation chapter 20. Hopefully it will help you understand Isaiah here a little bit better. This is the thousand-year period that's identified in Revelation 20. Verses 4 and six, four through 6, where he says, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have, part, who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. So John doesn't provide as much, provides as much information here about what will happen, be happening during that period of time, but thankfully... Isaiah fills in some of the details for us in these verses, 20 through, 20 through 25. It seems to describe the, this period. We, we don't have a lot of detail, and some of this language seems to be symbolic. But we can make sure, uh, we can make some several observations about this period. And the millennial reign of Jesus here on, on the earth appears to kind of be a transitional time that bridges us from the current age to this new heaven and earth. And there are, there are clearly activities that will be occurring on, on earth during this period that distinguish, uh, distinguishes it from um, uh, what will occur on this new heaven and earth. Think about it. People will be born and die, verses 20 and 23. Well, there's no more death in heaven. People will, will engage in ordinary activities in verse 22. A number of references to common ordinary activities here, such as working, building houses, people will reap benefits for their own labor, all these things. There is still the possibility of sin in verse 20. If you didn't catch it, you can catch it in the English Standard, uh, English Standard Version in, in verse 20. Isaiah refers to the sinner. So the people who are on earth during this period, including those who are born during this time, will still have the ability to choose whether or not to submit their lives to Jesus. It will still be a decision. And then in verse 25, Satan will be restrained. As we see here, dust shall be the serpent's food. This is pretty much a reference to the words from uh, uh, Genesis chapter 3 from God. 
So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are, are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. So this is fulfilled during the millennium when, when, uh, when Satan is bound. He doesn't have the ability to exert his influence on the earth as John describes in Revelation 20. And the fact that Satan is restrained in this way, but still there's the possibility of sin, reminds us that we can't blame anyone else for our sin. The devil didn't make you do it. It's our choice. And there's no doubt that the conditions on earth during this period will be far better than those that exist right now. Since Jesus will reign with righteousness and justice, even though there is still the possibility of sin, the level of evil and unrighteousness won't compare to what we experience today. It will be much better. So this will be a, a period of calm and peace where people will live in prosperity and experience joy. But as good as that time will be, it's just a time of transition to what is described as the new heaven and the new earth. In verses 17 through 19, John picks up on the concept of a new heaven and a new earth in, in Revelation 21. I love these verses. <laughs> Go to these verses quite a bit. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and He will live with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Isaiah describes the same event in verses 17 through 19 of Isaiah 65, as well as in chapter 66, verses 22 and 23. And even though Isaiah doesn't really distinguish between the millennial reign of Jesus and the new heaven and earth, you'll, you'll see that. You'll read through that and go, wait a second, that's not quite... They're separate events because God hasn't yet revealed that detail. It's obvious to us over 2,500 years later that there is a difference. But to Isaiah, this is what he saw, and this is how he had to communicate it. But there are several aspects of this new heaven and earth seen by both Isaiah and John that distinguish it from the millennium. No more death. No more sin. No more, no more time. In the new heaven and earth, there will be no more need to measure time since that age will continue for eternity. So these two, two, two ages, the millennial reign of Jesus here on earth and, and the new heaven and earth are different, even though Isaiah couldn't see that from what God had revealed to him at that point. Let me wrap this up real fast because we're getting over time. A pastor, pastor visited an older man. Pastor said, at your age, you should be thinking about the hereafter. The older man replied, oh, I do all the time. No matter where I am, in the living room, upstairs in the, in the kitchen, or down in the basement, I ask myself, what am I here after? <laughs> but, but let's face it, sometimes it's really hard on us to, to think about the hereafter when we're just struggling to live out our lives in the here and now. When life comes to us quick and hard, it's sometimes difficult to focus on our future. Now, I'm not just talking about a year from now, our glorious future. 
But both Isaiah and John reveal the nature of this glorious future to influence the way that their audience was to live their lives right then and there. They wanted them to make a change in their lifestyle. They were dealing with the reality of how to live our day-to-day lives in light of what we know about this glorious future. When we hear about this glorious future, we want to be part of it. We don't want to be with those other people that are going to be condemned and judged and thrown into the lake of fire. We don't want all that stuff. We want the good stuff. Well, what is it? What do we need to do? Peter asked the question, how are we to live in light of what we know about this glorious future, this day of the Lord? Thankfully for us, Peter answers that question very clearly, and here's where we'll get our application for all this. In 2 Peter 3, verses 10 through 14, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with His promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. So as Peter refers to the same new heavens and and new earth that Isaiah had had seen and, and which would later be described by John in Revelation, his concern is about how followers of Jesus are to live in light of that revelation. What are we supposed to do? Do something now. Don't wait. Make a change in your life now. And Peter gives us three practical guidelines I want to share with you here today in closing not only our time here together, but our series in Isaiah as well. What is it? How are we to live right now in light of what we know about this glorious future, this day of the Lord? Well, we are to live worshiping. We are to live worshiping. When Peter writes that we are to live holy and godly lives, he is addressing two sides of the same coin. Godliness refers to our attitude, that which rules our hearts. Holiness refers to our conduct, that which rules our behavior. And together, our attitude and our conduct is how we really worship God. Think about it. You come to church, how's your attitude? (laughs) Sometimes it's probably not as good as it should be. Or your conduct. What did you do in the week previous? Are you ashamed of what went on? Now here you come trying to worship God, and it's tough to do because something's not right in either conduct or attitude. In fact, the Greek word for godliness literally means to reverence well. So you see, true worship isn't just meeting here together on Sunday mornings and singing a few songs and listening to a sermon. True worship is a life style. That's evidenced by a right attitude and a right conduct. That's the picture that Paul gives us in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, verse that we read through at the adult Bible's uh, discussion this morning. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Since we're going to spend eternity in a place without sin, it makes sense that we ought to begin practicing that kind of lifestyle right now. <laughs> Another way, we, what we're supposed to, how we're supposed to live, we are to live expectantly. 
live expectantly. Peter's words are full of a, a sense of expectancy. And that sense of expectancy is a key element in enabling us to worship with the right attitude and with the right conduct. For example, let's suppose that you are about to marry the love of your life. And as you look forward to the wedding day with great expectancy, it's not likely that you're going to be tempted to have an affair with someone. Not likely. The same thing is true about this day of the Lord. If we look forward to that day with great expectancy, it's much less likely that the things of this world are going to have much attraction for us. <laughs> we look at heaven, we go, oh, oh, I want to be there. That sounds awesome. Because those things, th these things here on earth and all, it, it doesn't compare to what God has in store for us. And then we're also to live diligently. We need to live diligently. Peter ends this passage with a command to be diligent, to be found without spot or blemish. The writer of Hebrews reinforces that idea in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. So these verses together with 2 Peter chapter 3 point out the need to be diligent in our pursuit of holiness and godliness. And because we are human, we know that we have the ability to fail and sin. But God is looking for men and women who are committed to the diligent pursuit of a godly lifestyle. Worshiping God by living a holy life isn't easy. It takes hard work. It requires discipline. It requires perseverance, but we are able to do that because of what we have to look forward to in the future. But worshiping with holiness and godliness, living in expectation, and diligently seeking to be found without spot or blemish are not just for us. When we live that kind of life, God also uses our lives to bless those around us and to help them in their journey toward faith. In Jesus, they see your life, and they go, hmm, that looks nice. And it's true that in many cases, the, the only gospel that unbelievers around us will see is our lives. What are you showing them? So even though the fickleness of our faith can be pretty prevalent in troubled times, you're going through difficult times, your faith might waver a little bit. God bridges our fickle faith and His faithfulness through His grace. And what a great way to help us through our troubled times by having us focus on the glorious future He has for us. Are you going through tough times? Remember, there's a heaven to be gained. We're going to have a glorious future. And the glorious future He has for us is incredible. It should motivate us to live worshiping in holiness and godliness, living expectantly, and diligently seeking to be found without spot or blemish. A lifestyle that God uses to bless others and draws them to Himself. What a great way to get our minds off of our troubles and into other people's lives and into the future that we have coming to us. <laughs> what a gracious ending to a great book. Come on up. It's going to lead us in some singing.
And this next song, trust, will be your prayer as well. As you've heard all this here, and we've gone through, not gone through all of Isaiah, but gone through a bit of Isaiah in these last nine Sundays, be able to get a taste of what it means to get through these troubled times, I trust that this song will be a prayer of yours, that you will want to draw close to God in such a way. And as, as we sing these words, maybe, maybe you just want to listen to them. Maybe you want to stand up and sing, whatever you want to do, however you want to worship God in this moment, and to agree with Him, yes, this is what you have for me. I want this. I want to draw closer to you. You do it in whatever posture you want, but let's sing to God at this, this song. <laughs> 